So if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that uh, this Christmas, as we approach Christmas, we've been appreciating the uh, importance and purpose of the genealogies in telling the story of Jesus' coming. Those long lists of names that we often skip over. But we've seen how they point us back to the lives and the stories and the relationships and the promises of the people of the Old Testament and what God was doing in their lives and how they all fit together and they all point forward to this amazing new thing that God is doing in sending his son to be born among us. Um, I was actually really struck last week by an image that Sophie shared as she reflected on our previous teaching system uh, series on the wisdom literature and her message on the stars. Um, if you weren't here, we had Alyssa's dad, David, who's an astrophysicist, come and he talked to us about how amazing and big the universe is. And then Soph helped us theologically reflect on what it says about the kind of God God is and, and what it means to be his people. And as we looked at those pictures, these incredible pictures of the expanse of the universe and how big it is with all those billions of stars and galaxies and planets, we were blown away by the God who holds it all together, by the God who's actually the only one that can see the whole of the universe and how it all fits together. And there's a sense in which genealogies work the same way. Now, I know, it, it actually sounds kind of crazy at first because I'm sure that lots of you have had that experience of going out into the stars at night and looking up and being amazed and just wondering at how beautiful and how big and incredible it is. And I'm pretty sure not too many people come to these passages in the Bible and read the genealogies and have that same experience of awe and of wonder and of worship. But that's actually kind of what genealogies are designed to do. They're like a map or a picture on which all these different people's lives taking place over continents and generations and millennia are on the same page. And they're woven together in this tapestry that God holds together. And, and again, God is the only one who can see it all at once and see the echoes and the connections and the influences and the reflections and how it all fits together. I think it's a little bit like seeing a family tree. I don't know if you've ever seen your family tree on a page in front of you and marveled at some of the connections and the relationships. When I was about 10 years old, uh, we went to this big family reunion, which I definitely didn't appreciate at the time, but <laughs> uh, one of my nana's great-great-grandfathers was an officer on the First Fleet, and so they decided to get everyone who was descended from him together. And we had a bush dance in this big barn <laughs> And on one whole wall of the barn, they actually had this family tree. They had him in 1788 and on all his kids and their kids and their kids. And, and so you could actually see everyone, technically. We had to add ourselves because me and my sister went on there because it wasn't quite up to date. But so you could actually see how all these, there was 500 people there, all these 500 people in the room were connected. You could actually have that whole argument about, you know, is it third cousins twice removed or first cousins once removed and nobody could figure it out. But you could see how we were all related. It was kind of amazing. Or maybe you could think about this running joke that we kind of have here in Adelaide, that there are two, de two degrees of separation between everyone. So basically in Adelaide, if you meet someone, guaranteed they will know someone that you know. And we try and find those connections and tell those stories. Just within our church, you could try to map out some of the relationships about how people are connected to each other. I decided to have a go trying to play this game. Here's, here's my starting point for you, right? So I think about how 
Uh, in my other role on the team that I work with, one of the people I work with is Brett's cousin, and another one of the people I work with is Renee's dad, and one of the people I used to work with is Jane's brother, but then he moved overseas, and so Elliot and Sarah are living in his house. But I also used to work with him in a previous role where I also worked with Meg's uncle, who is also Brad's uncle because Meg and Brad are cousins, who knew? And then part of that team was also Nathan's mum and dad, who also taught me at Bible College where I studied with, under Tammy's dad and also alongside Josh's dad uh, and Brett's other cousin. Uh, and then at Bible College, when I was teaching there, I taught Naomi's sister and I also taught Ryan's cousin and then Ryan's other cousin because Ryan has a lot of cousins. Um, and, you know, you could just kind of keep going all day. And it's like somehow we all end up connected. There's some sense of family and connection between all of us. And I think that's one of the reasons why we feel the impact so heavily when we hear news like this morning of the bushfires affecting people we love and feel connected to and the people they love and are connected to. It's that sense of family and community and that our stories are intertwined because that's the way God created us to be. God has been weaving our stories together in his big purpose and design since the beginning of time, holding it all in his hands, seeing all of it at the same time, making the connections and working within and throughout to make himself known and bring us into his family together once and for all. And so this morning, I want to take us again to the opening page of Matthew's Gospel, to the genealogy where Matthew introduces us to the family line of Jesus and how it flows from and out of all these other stories that have come before and how the different threads find their meeting point and their fulfillment in this one story of God coming to us as a baby in the flesh. We already considered a couple of weeks ago that Jesus is the son of Adam, one of us, able to understand and embrace our humanity to represent us and to open the way for us to experience true humanity once and for all. And we looked at Jesus as the son of Abraham, the one through whom God fulfills this amazing promise to bring his blessing and through us to bless all the nations of the world. Today, I want to take you to one of the most significant and well-known Old Testament figures that Matthew's genealogy highlights in particular and that's David. Jesus is the son of David. And David is one of those stories that has multiple connection points. It's kind of like the Ryan of his, you know, family's related to everyone. <laughs> there are a number of key events in the history of Israel and a number of promises that are made by God and spoken by the prophets that all link to David. Of all the people in the genealogy and the story and family line of Jesus, he is the one talked about most often both in the promises of the Old Testament leading towards the story of Jesus, but also in the story of Jesus unfolding throughout the pages of the New Testament and on into the future. So what does it mean that Jesus is the son of David? And what does it mean for us to know and follow and worship Jesus as the son of David? Well, when you think of King David... There's probably a number of stories that might come to mind, stories that are commonly told and referenced about him today. Most people have heard of David and Goliath, that famous story of David, the brave young man who is the only one to trust God 
when his people are facing what seems like an insurmountable threat. There's also the famous story of David and Bathsheba, sometimes portrayed as a story of lust, temptation and adultery, but more honestly, a story of power corrupting the middle-aged king to the point that he thinks he can get away with laziness and deception and sexual abuse and murder. But then there's also the counterpoint to that story, where David is confronted with the depths of his own sinfulness and he falls on his knees in repentance and he cries out to God for forgiveness in one of his most famous songs. And of course, there are over 70 songs in the book of Psalms that are written by David, expressing his gift and his leadership in worship and prayer. But that, none of those are the stories that I want to point us to this morning. Because for the people of Israel, both throughout the Old Testament and I think in particular at the time of Jesus' coming, when they heard the name of David, there was actually one story above all others that it would have come to their minds. And it's probably not one that we would immediately think of. It's the story that's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Tad read just a part of it to us. It seems to take place towards the end of David's life after he's fought his battles and overcome his temptations and sung his songs. David's been reigning as Israel's king for a number of years and he's been very successful. He's brought them peace from their enemies and established a home for them and a capital city in Jerusalem where he's built his palace. And it's a really significant moment in the Old Testament story. It kind of links back to what we talked about last week because one of the promises that God gave to Abraham when God was spelling out what it would look like for his people to live as a light to the nations and a blessing to the whole world was that they would live in community and show his presence in and through their shared lives and in order to do that, there would be a place, a land, a location in which they would live that out. And now, for the first time in their history, under King David, they are living at peace in that land. For the first time, they're in the right place at the right time with the right circumstances to be the people that God has called them to be. God has been faithful, and they are experiencing his blessing for themselves. And so it seems to me that David gets to thinking. He thinks about God's promises and God's purposes, as a nation, they are called to show the world around them what God is like, to let his presence among them be seen in all they do and all they are, in all their relationships. And their identity as a nation is founded on this one truth, that God is with them. God is with them. God has been with them. Through all the struggles and all the battles, God has walked beside them. And now they're settled, they're at peace in the place that God has given them. And David remembers God's words way back in the time of Moses that we can read in the book of Deuteronomy before they even got into the land, where God said, once you enter into the land and you find yourselves at rest, that he would choose a place to dwell visibly and physically present among them. It's kind of hard for us to wrap our heads around how the Old Testament works, but the idea that God would have a home among his people in a visible, tangible, physical way that they could see was really important. And up until this point, God's visible presence has been seen through this thing called the tabernacle, which is basically a big tent that they pack up and move and carry with them wherever they go. 
They set it up so that they can worship God and meet with him and offer sacrifices. And when they are a people on the move, the tent is a visible symbol that God is on the move with them. We have a tent that we camp out in. God has a tent that he comes with us and we set it up and he pitches his tent and dwells amongst us. But now they're settled in the land. They're at peace. They're at rest. And so David wants to build God a temple. A temple is a permanent physical structure, a dwelling place in the city of Jerusalem where God's presence would be seen permanently with them and experienced and lived out. And so David goes to the prophet Nathan and he says, I want to build God a house, a temple, a great place where his glory will be seen and made known that he is with us. And then the story in 2 Samuel 7 takes an unexpected turn. It often happens in the Bible and we might miss it because we read the Bible backwards. We often know the end of the story. And so we miss how surprising some of the twists and turns it takes is. But from David's point of view, What he is proposing is the next logical step forward. He should build God a house. But instead, God speaks to David through the prophet Nathan and God says something truly astounding. God doesn't want David to build him a permanent house. God is going to build David an eternal house. God is going to build David an eternal house. God promises to David that he will establish his dynasty his kingship, his reign forever. There's actually almost a little joke going on here in the the text. It's not the funniest joke in the world, but it's a bit of play on words that's happening in this conversation between David and God because the same word house or bait in Hebrew is used for both the temple, the house that God would dwell in, and the dynasty or the kingship or the reign or the house of David. It's the same word is used. And so it's like God's making a little joke. It might This might sound a bit weird, but what God is doing here is a bit like that classic scene in the movie Crocodile Dundee. You know the one, come on, that's not a knife, this is a knife, yes? And God is saying to David, that's not a house. Let me show you a house. I've got something in mind that's going to blow your mind. There's something going on here that is completely unexpected and it shows God's incredible favour and blessing. David is seeking to follow God's plan and be obedient to God's word and live it out. And he's reminded that God is always doing something bigger. God is always able to surprise us with more than we have asked for and more more than we could expect and more than we could even imagine. And this whole idea of a house, of God dwelling amongst his people, is another story that has connections backwards and forwards right throughout the whole of the Bible from the Garden of Eden to the tabernacle to the giving of the law to the coming of Jesus who dwells amongst us, who makes his house amongst us, to the vision of the new creation when God will dwell with his people once and for all. God's heart, God's desire, God's goal has always been and always is to live with his people, to make his home amongst us, to make his house with us right here in our midst. And so this back and forth conversation with David is like one more unfolding of this grand plan, one more outworking of what this will look like. And the promise of a house of David, or we might say a dynasty of David or a kingdom of David, becomes another thread that is woven throughout the history of the story of God's plan and purpose for all things. This moment 
in 2 Samuel 7, in David's life, becomes the start of a series of prophecies and promises and hopes and expectations that unfold over the next thousand years. A thousand years worth of reaffirmation of this, of what God's kingdom looks like and what it means to live under his reign. The kingdom of David, David's kingship, becomes a promise and a picture that points forward to a king like no other king the world has ever known. A king who reigns forever. A king who reigns with complete justice and pure righteousness. A king who leads not for himself, but for the benefit and flourishing of all people. And a kingdom that is open to everyone and offers peace and security to anyone who wants to enter into it. A kingdom, a house, a dynasty, those ideas probably don't spark the same kind of hope and promise for us today when we first hear them. We don't live in a world of dynasties and houses and royal kingdoms, certainly not like the people of David's day did, and, and not even like the people of Jesus' day. So I wondered, how do we enter into this story? How do we let this kind of inspire for us the same imagination and expectation that it would have had for them when they first heard it? One thought, maybe we can put ourselves back into the shoes of a peasant living in the time of King David, living a life that is marked by uncertainty and marred by war, where fear of foreign oppression and brutality is your everyday reality. Not knowing when you wake up whether today will be the day that your children will be taken away from you or you will be tortured and brutalised or your home and your livelihood will be destroyed, or your life will be carelessly traded away into slavery, or your throat will be split, slit, and your corpse casually tossed aside as just one more on the pile of defeated enemies. We are talking Game of Thrones type level violence here. Kings in the ancient world had the absolute right to do whatever they wanted. And Israel has lived for generations with the threat of foreign kings coming in and defeating them and subjecting them to abuse and destroying them. And yes, they have also lived through some times where they have been the oppressors and they have carried out the brutality and then they have lived with the consequences of having perpetrated that kind of evil against others. That was what the world was like. And what God is doing in David is establishing a whole new kind of kingship, a new way of being in the world, a reign of justice and righteousness, of benevolence and compassion, a kingdom that doesn't even belong to this world. It is so different to what anyone has ever seen before because it demonstrates the qualities of eternity, of goodness and peace. A kingdom to which people from every nation will stream because they have been longing for that kind of blessing and joy, that kind of wisdom and counsel, that kind of generosity and community. So throughout the pages of the Old Testament, down through the years, the prophets echo and extend and expound and envision what this kingdom could look like. And they paint this beautiful picture with their words and invite God's people to actually live in that picture with their hands and their feet. So the phrase, the house of David, 
the dynasty of David, the king of David, the son of David, all these kind of become shorthand phrases for this hope and longing that one day life could be so much more, that justice will reign and righteousness will burst forth and kindness will dawn. But then there's the reality. Because, of course, the problem is that David himself and his son and his son and his son and his son and all the kings who follow him on his throne, the inheritors of these promises, one after another after another, they fail to live out this promised kingdom. Sometimes there are glimpses, and perhaps for a time it looks like what God has pledged is finally coming to pass. But always the dream smashes up against the reality. Injustice, oppression, defeat. Generation after generation, the promises and hopes of David's kingdom continue to be passed on, continue to be hoped for. And at the same time, generation after generations, David's sons fail to live up to what has been spoken about them. And the longing grows. And the expectation builds. When will God's promised kingdom finally come? When will this king, this Messiah, arrive? The word Messiah simply means anointed one. And it was used for every king of Israel because they were anointed. They were set apart in the name of God and the promises that God has made to David. And the act of anointing, when you get a king to bow down and he kneels down and you uh, put oil on his head and set him apart, that act of anointing was a reminder that this kingship was not meant to be like the kingships of all the other nations. That it was called to be something different, something amazing and life-changing and world-transforming. And so with every new king, Generation after generation, every new son of David would be anointed when he ascended to the throne. And the question would again be on everyone's lips. Is he the one? Is this the one that God promised, that God was talking about? Not just another Messiah, but the, capital M, Messiah. The one who will live out and fulfill all these hopes and promises. Not just another descendant of David, but the capital S, son of David, the one who will reign eternally forever. And by the time we reach the opening page of the New Testament, of the Gospel, as we step into first century Palestine, things are looking even worse. Because not only has this promised son of David not arrived, but the people of God no longer even have a king at all. The line of David's sons reigning upon the throne has long since ended when they were defeated by the Babylonians 500 years ago. And now they find themselves subject again to foreign rulers, to brutal dictators, to oppressive outsiders, this time the Roman emperors, who call themselves God made manifest and yet continue in the same traditions of brutality and oppression and injustice that the kings of this world have always shown. And where do the people of Israel look? There's no son of David sitting on the throne who might be this possible Messiah that they have been longing for. And yet, God's promises haven't been forgotten. They continue to speak the words of the prophets and to read the words of this story of David. The hopes and the expectations have continued to build. 
the idea of a different kind of king, or maybe it's faded a bit, or in some cases it's been twisted, but it still lies buried deep in their subconscious and in the innermost longings of their hopeful hearts. And so it matters when Matthew opens his gospel with these words. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the son of David. It matters when the angel appears to Joseph and calls him son of David. It matters when Mary and Joseph head off to Bethlehem, the city of David, their ancestral home for Jesus to be born there. It matters when Jesus starts teaching and the people who are amazed by it begin to ask each other, could, could this be the son of David? It matters when the blind and the lame and the demon-possessed look to Jesus for healing by crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. And it matters when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday and the people proclaim him with the blessing, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus is the son, capital S, of David. Jesus is the Messiah, capital M. He is the one they have been waiting for. He is the king who comes to establish this new kind of kingdom forever. He is the inheritor and the fulfiller of all the promises and all the prophecies about this new kind of king. And this is demonstrated in the way that he lives his life and in his death and in his resurrection to new life once and for all. Jesus lays claim to the title, Son of David, because he embodies and expresses this kingdom in himself. He is the king. And yet God isn't done surprising people. God isn't done reminding us that his kingdom is unexpected and upside down and totally unlike anything you've ever seen before. He's born not in a palace, but in a stable. He comes riding not on a war horse, but on a donkey. He leads not with power and might, but with humility and service. He is crowned not on a throne, but on a cross. He defeats not the power of the Roman oppressors, but the powers of darkness. And he is raised not to national leadership, but to cosmic rulership over all creation. This is the kingdom of God and its incomparable King Jesus. You don't have to have been around Richmond very long to know that we talk a lot about King Jesus. We get plenty of comments on our use of that phrase, that title. We could say Jesus Christ, which is the Greek translation of the word Messiah and so means exactly the same thing. But that's so common in its usage that it can kind of feel like more of a surname than a title. And if we're honest, mostly the time we hear that said in full is when people are using it as a swear word. What we hope is that the title King Jesus is arresting and unexpected and compelling and maybe makes us stop and take notice for a moment because it is a big claim. It is a powerful claim. It is a claim that demands our attention and that demands our response. Because we might not live in a world of dynasties and kings, but we understand the kind of claim that title makes. A claim to kingship is a claim to authority 
and a claim to our allegiance. It's a claim of power and status worthy of honour and respect. And then you put that title, King, alongside the name Jesus and his story and it brings together the teaching and life of a humble servant, saviour and friend with the cosmic story of the reign and rule that is unlike anything the world has ever seen. So what does it mean for you to call Jesus king? Does it challenge your allegiances, your choices, your commitments? It should. If Jesus is king, then everything else comes second to that. To call him King Jesus is to submit to his reign, to acknowledge his rule over all things in this world and all things in my life. It confronts how I spend my time and what I do with my money and who I align myself with and what I say matters to me. It challenges my politics and my attitudes. It challenges my ethics and my opinions. It changes my priorities. It makes a claim on every single area of my life. Using the title King Jesus is not for the faint-hearted. It is a statement of loyalty and submission like no other you will ever make. Calling him King Jesus is also an acceptance of his invitation to live in his kingdom. It means living under and in and out of his justice and righteousness. It looks like accepting and demonstrating his forgiveness and compassion in practice, no matter what. It means obeying his teachings and proclaiming his good news to the world. Calling Jesus king means seeing myself as part of his community, his family, and doing life together with his people for the sake of the world, giving his vision and will for the world visible demonstration in this neighbourhood, in this place. It means a, like a fundamental change in how I understand my identity and my place in the world and how I relate to everyone else. We're actually going to be exploring this idea of being kingdom people in our teaching series next year because it's a calling of incredible sacrifice and amazing joy. It's completely transformative of all we are and all we do. And above all, Naming King Jesus is an act of worship. It is a declaration of the greatest truth in the universe and a proclamation to all creation that we believe that the culmination of all of history, of God's entire grand story and all its promises and all its hopes is found in this man, this person, this Lord, this Saviour, this King Jesus. Amen? It should have us on our feet with shouts of joy and on our knees with tears of gratitude. It is not a title we should say lightly or cavalierly. It's not a name to say unless you are sure you are willing to accept what it means. But it is the name at which one day every knee will bow and all of creation will confess and the angels will sing as he returns in glory to redeem all things. And we get to start that acclamation now. Our worship, our lives, our allegiances to King Jesus, 
is the coming together of all the stories and hopes and promises that have led to his coming. And yet it is only a glimpse of what is still to be revealed in the fullness of all he is, King Jesus.